God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in, sp in the Spirit, joined and beholding your, your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and as always, Lord, I help your truth to be exposed tonight, Father, and uh, let my opinions and thoughts be set aside, Father, just to explain your truth and your truth only, Lord, and have uh, the cares and concerns of this world set aside temporarily this evening as uh, we look into your word so that your truth can change us, Lord. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so Colossians chapter 2 starts out with with uh, a change of pace. So Paul was addressing them originally, and it was a, a greeting to them, an introduction of what he was going to go over, and then uh, even going into... Uh, the uh, the preeminence and the and where who Christ is as God and also uh, his preeminence not only in the universe but also in the church and this was important for the Colossians as they were a young church but now in chapter two he's he's going to start to tell them is that he's anxious because he has a long distance relationship with his church that he hasn't met before and so he has a conflict he says in verse one he says I have a great conflict for you. And this is because he, he was having a struggle in the mind because he wasn't present with them. This was difficult for him because he was having to have this long-distance relationship with a church he had not met a majority of the members at. And he was concerned over this new and growing church in Colossae. And so he's employing them to continue walking with Christ uh, in the ways that were scriptural and taught to them by the apostles. Remember, there, there are a lot of them that were from this region that probably were present or some of them that were probably present in Acts chapter 2 uh, when the apostles were teaching, teaching and they were staying uh, in the apostles' doctrines and teaching at that time. They probably came back to this region, some of them, and were some of those originals that had heard the apostles teach. And as we'll see, some of them have heard Paul teach and have been with him. And so, uh, and so he was concerned because he wasn't there to directly be with them. And so we know that, um, we know that, the, that there are some with him in their congregation who were taught directly, as he points out. And you can go to chapter 4 and see some of them, and he points them out in the beginning as well, such as Onesimus, uh, Epaphras, Tychicus, uh, Aris, okay, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Aristarchus, I think I got it, and Archippus. And so they were discipled and trained and along with Paul at some point in time, but they now, as they're identified later in the book, they were with them and ministering to them, but they were trained directly with Paul. They were around the apostles. They knew the teachings and doctrines that were correct to have in a church. And he points out that these are the these are the ones who should be leading you. You need to pay attention to this. And so he has a concern and desire for them. And so as we look in verse 1, he says, For, for I would that you know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as not seen my face in the flesh. And later he's going to say, hey, you need to go read this letter to the Laodiceans as well that I'm writing you. Uh, he wraps up the the letter to them with that, but he he says he has a conflict for them because he wants something to happen. 
he's desiring something to happen and he's concerned that it's not going to happen. And what is that? He says in, in uh, uh, sorry, we'll, we'll finish up verse one there, that the concern wasn't just for the Colossians. It also was for the Laodiceans and then potentially other places where there were congregations that he knew of that were forming or were new or had Christians. And he says, I haven't been able to see them and, and directly guide them and give them assistance. And so he's nervous for them. And he wants them, not just the Colossians, but the Laodiceans and these others to grow in a certain way. And what is that? He says he wants them to be comforted in verse 2. He says that their hearts might be comforted. And so he wants them to be comforted in a couple different ways. He says, first of all, being knit together in love. And so Christians need comfort, believe it or not. We There's a, a fallacy that once you get saved, everything is just wonderful. Uh, there's no struggles anymore, but that's simply not true. The Christians actually need comfort. The the struggle with sin and, and living in a world that's corrupted by sin and the and eroding by sin causes distress in our lives. We we experience the effects of sin as Christians. We experience it not only personally uh, and what we do to ourselves, but we also experience it from the world around us and others around us is the effects of sin and it causes a struggle. And so Christians do need comforting. Turn to Romans chapter 8. You look there because it's also pointed out this issue. Romans chapter 8 and verses 22 and 23. It says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, and that's of course referring to ourselves, even the apostles were struggling. The, these men who you think, well, they should have it all together and be able to withstand anything and get through anything. And we saw that even with Paul, or he was just beaten, stoned, pretty much left because he thought he was dead, drowned, shipwrecked. You say, well, they can get through anything. But what's it say? But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirits, those who are directly with Christ and taught from Christ, even ourselves grown with, within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Christians struggle, and we need comforted. We'll go back to Colossians 2. But, but we know that there's a hope. There's, a, there's an end to it when we're with Christ in heaven for eternity. But while we're here, we need to comfort each other. And he says you need to be knit together in love. And I really think that, uh, I really think that Love is one of those things that is really lacking in what became the fundamental movement uh, over the last few decades. Uh, and I think so much that there was a, a pendulum shift with, with love and what it was all the way to the other side to where it, it became not a Christ-centered love. It became a self-centered love and a me-centered love. And so they, it went from very little love under fundamentalism and the IFB movements where it was all about doctrine and legalism and you will do this and you will follow these rules and you don't need to know why, you just need to stay in line to where now the next generation said, no, we want a pendulum swing, but they went way too far. And they said, well, we want to have this contemporary movement where it's just love, 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 but they aren't telling you what that love is. That love is very centered on yourself. And so love is definitely something which is, which is needed in a congregation, but it's needed correctly. So knit together in a common love, which is Christ. If you love Christ, you will learn how to love other people. Which is, and your love of Christ is expressed in action by loving one another. In, in John 13, 14, 
Christ says that he gives a new commandment, that you love one another as he loved us. So the way we love Christ is by in action is by showing that same love to the other people around us. And so in a congregation of believers, Christians are struggling. Christians have issues. We have pains. We have hurts. We have distresses. I mean, even in our short-lived time, we've had uh, some here that, that needed help. Because Christians need to be knit together and love. If you don't find love from your church, you'll go find it from somewhere else. But where will it be? And it's sad that many times lost people love Christians more than Christians love each other. And what does that do? It draws them into what Paul's going to warn is they're going to get pulled into these philosophies and deceits because love is being shown to them more by those without than those with. So we need to show it to each other, being knit together. And so even, a, even in congregations that are small like ours or big, You'll see a lot of the common, the common problems of the hearts and, and the struggles that Christians have because we have hearts wounded by bad relationships and they need help healing. So we need to be there for them. Hearts grieving over lost loved ones and they need comfort. There's hearts dealing with miscarriages that need you to help them mourn. Sometimes they just need you to be there to just be there while they're sad. Hearts joyous over new love over what the future holds with like a newborn baby. They want you to be there to love sometimes in joyfulness. We can't overlook those things and say, oh, well, somebody else will be excited with them. No, be joyful with them. And hearts battling through depression, that just needs somebody to actually say, I care. And, and there's hope. There's hope, as we saw in Romans 8. Yeah, there's a struggle, but there's hope that when this ends, when this ends, there's, there's a glorious thing in the end but you have to maintain the fight. So their love is needed very much in a congregation. Even in a small congregation like ours, there can be big problems. There can be big issues. There can be a lack of love, which could divide us now. And that's why Paul is saying, I have a conflict for you. Even though you're small, Colossians, even though you're tiny, remember, they were in an insignificant city at the time. They were the North Pole, Alaska of the Bible times. Nobody really knew what they did. Nobody really cared if they existed. If it was wiped off the map, which it was a few years later, you go, it was insignificant, so who cares? And Paul is saying, I have such a conflict for you. Why? Because even though you're small, being knit together with love is so vital right now as you're growing. Because you need to turn to each other during those hurts, during those, even during the joyful times, during the bad times. You need to show each other that love. And so I'd ask you, where are you and showing that Christian, that Christ-like love to the ones around us. Are you expecting that somebody else will do it, or are you fulfilling that? Are you showing that commandment that Christ said is, love the person next to you, that Christian next to you. Just as I loved you, I need you to be the one there, showing them concern. And so what's the second thing that he goes through? He says, you're not only comforted by being knit together with love, he says, I want you to be comforted in full assurance. Full assurance and full confidence, full persuasion, he says. He says, I want you to be knit together in love, but also unto all the riches of full assurance of understanding. He says, I want you to be fully persuaded and fully confident in what you believe to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of the Father and of Christ. I want you to be, 
I want you to be very confident in your beliefs. And why is that? Because he says, in, the, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I like the way Matthew Henry put it in his commentary. I can't word it better than him, so I'll just borrow his quote. When referring to the treasures that are hid with God, he says, the treasures of wisdom are hid not from us, but for us in Christ. You need to understand and be confident in God's word that you will go to it to find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in here. He says that you will be comforted not only by loving one another, putting that arm around you, feeling that embracing hug, knowing somebody's praying for you, being there to have a shoulder to cry on, being comforted through that. He says you also will feel the same comfort by having the assurance and the confidence in God's word to know that you will go there and you will find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because that confidence, that confidence is going to keep you grounded. That confidence is where you are going to, you are going to be comforted knowing that I am right in this battle. Because we, we all know what that feeling is like when you know that you're right on something and you will fight for it. I mean, go back and look at, look at past wars that the United States has been in. We had no doubt that freedom and liberty and all of the things we stood for were right against tyranny, against terrorism, against all the wickedness that we saw in the world. There was no doubt when a soldier pulled that trigger, he knew, I have full confidence that what I'm about to do is right because I'm defending what I know is correct. I have full assurance and full confidence that I'm defending that. But if you can shake their confidence, they might not fight. It was a common tactic used. We use a, There was a lady who used this, and I should have looked up beforehand, I just remembered. There's a lady who did this against the Nazis. She actually shook their confidence in what they knew to be true and right by convincing them their spouses were unfaithful at home shaking their confidence to the core that they actually gave up and left the fight. Because if you are not confident in what you know to be right and what you know to be true, you will not be a good soldier for Christ. You're not going to fight. And what does that also mean? He says you're going to have comfort in that, knowing that you are in the right camp. You're going to have a confidence knowing that what I know is true is true because I, got, I pulled it out of God's word. I know that this is the wisdom and the knowledge that I need for life. And when I apply it, even though it goes completely countercultural, I have people telling me I'm crazy. People telling me that you are too literal with scripture, that what you're doing is not right. And you hear that all the time from missionaries who are going to go out in the mission field and people will try to convince them out of going. And they'll say, you can't take your family there. You shouldn't do these things. Your faith is too extreme. But they stand confident. Why? Because they know, no, this is what God says. And I know the Great Commission to be true. And I'm so confident in it, I'll risk everything. Because I know the reward is great. And so you need to be firm on your, your teaching, your preaching, your studying God's word. But also your search to find and keep the wisdom that are hidden in the depths of God's word. Because the wisdom does not come naturally or through any other method other than searching God's word, which is now complete, understanding this gospel and the truth that's in scripture. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And so he moves on from there. He says, you're going to be comforted in love, but you're going to be comforted in full assurance. 
with that wisdom and that knowledge that you have in God's Word. So those times when you are shaken up and you are stirred up, or is it because you needed someone to comfort you in love, or is it because you lacked confidence in what God said? Look at those the next time you get shaken up. What do you need? In this I say, lest any man, verse 4, why should beguile you with enticing words? For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. Join in beholding your order in the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. False teaching, manipulations of the truth, uh, deceptiveness of fables, um, preventing you from find, prevent you from finding that wisdom and truth that God has for you. And so it's if you look at the book of Galatians, Paul's addressing a problem that the Galatian region was having. It was a false gospel. It was a gospel, which he called another gospel, but it actually was not good news. It was something which was false and leading people to hell. It was not leading them to salvation and to heaven. The true gospel does that. He says in Galatians, you're teaching another gospel. But that's not what he's warning against right here. He's not warning against heresies which are leading people to hell. What he's warning against is beguilement of those who already follow Christ that are going to be following weak theology. He says, listen, you, you, are going, you can become beguiled, you can become tricked by following things after salvation that will make your theology, your understanding, your study of God so weak that you will not grow or find the treasures and the, the, the wisdom in God's Word. You need to be careful because those smooth talkers that are trying to sell you something are giving you weak theology that's going to derail you for long periods of time in your life and you will not be reaping any rewards from God. And so weak theology can destroy a church because what it does is it weakens one member at a time, leaving them inadequate. And, and like a weakened immune system, the, the lack to, they, you'll lack a power to destroy any infection that comes in. You're just going to start to lack power. Because your, your truth does not reside in God, it resides in something else. You've been beguiled. You've been tricked. You've been deceived. And he's going to go further into this. And when your theology is weak, when your theology is weak, you're, the church collectively is not going to be able to fight back against things that are wrong because just like a weakened immune system, your ability to recognize that it's an infection is diminished greatly. And so that weak theology is going to start to live and it's going to start to breed and it's going to start to cause problems in growth. It's going to cause problems in the church and it's going to cause bad theology to start to get spread. And so are we saying... You're not saved if you do these things. No. The warning is, you can be saved and still fall into these traps. You're not immune to being tricked after salvation. In fact, that's the only way Satan still has left to make you, a, to make you benign. To make you nothing of effect for God is to trick you and beguile you with these philosophies and deceitful thinking that will make you ineffective as a Christian. And so he wants you to go straight to God's Word and search those things out. And so what's some evidence of weak theology is you'll start, to, you'll start to have some effects in your life if you're having weak theology. Meaning that, yeah, I accepted Christ, but I'm on the wrong path 
with my study of God and who he is and the character of who he is, because that affects the lens of how you view everything in scripture is who you think God is. Yes, you thought Christ died and rose again for your sins. Yes, you are saved. But how you view God and his character has been so weakened. You have a weak view of God and it's going to cause issues in your life. And the, and the following examples, this would not be all of it, but, but a, a one that commonly happens is a, a practical atheistic way of living. Is you get saved, but but your your belief is that the living God is kind of detached from your life. That doesn't come from Scripture. That's a worldly teaching. That God would be detached from your life. And so the and so if you turn to Second Peter chapter three, we'll look at some people that suffered this. And of course, this is going to be the lost people. And that's why I say practical atheism. This is someone who's saved, but for all purposes, when you look at them or hear them or the way they behave, they're indistinguishable from lost people. If you put them in the lineup, it's hard to tell this is a Christian, this is a lost person. If you hear them speak, it's hard to tell this is a Christian, this is a lost person. If you listen to the music they listen to, is this a Christian or a lost person? The movies they watch, is this a Christian or a lost person? How they spend their free time, is this a Christian or a lost person? It's a struggle to tell the difference when you're living as a practical atheist. But they're very similar looking. And so what is, what's it saying? in 2 Peter chapter 3, as we, as we look at this, he says, uh, let me see which verse I want to start with. Right, let's we'll do verse three into four. Knowing this first, that there shall come in there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You see, the idea of atheism is rooted in if God was real, then He would have a direct effect on me. They don't, what they don't pay attention to though is God is real. He is having a direct effect on you, but he also gives you the ability to choose. And yes, he will give you the ability to choose and permits it that you are allowed to choose to live as if he is not effective in your life. That's a choice that we get to make. And even after salvation, you can still choose that God has no effect in my life now. I'm saved. I have my fire insurance. But when I hear the preaching, when I hear someone teaching, when someone shares truth, I don't apply it because it's not for me. That's for somebody else, but it's not for me. I also don't bother to look at God's word, study it out for myself, and look at how I can change myself to conform to the image of God more. You're going to lack a lot of personal study time, a lot of personal prayer time when you're living a life like this. And so uh, Romans 6.2, Paul, of course, talks about what should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's your justification? Well, just like just like others in Scripture, you choose ignorance. Well, if I study God's word, then I'm going to have to change. If I if I listen to the preaching, I'm going to have to change. I'm saved. Isn't that good enough? No, that was the beginning. And actually, if you're being beguiled, you haven't left that spot yet. You could be stuck there for a very long time. And so the, and so the second way it will start to look is, is practical agnosticism. Agnostic being that you believe there's a God, 
You believe there's a God, but he's unknowable, so why bother? And so this comes a lot with a lot of the the early, you'll see how like the third century, uh, with a lot of the teaching that comes out of there, especially in the, the uh, as we were looking at the Calvinism studies with, um, going blank on his name, what's the guy John Calvin studied? Can't remember his name. Augustine, thank you. With Augustine, with Origen, with others, that they viewed scripture as being allegorical, not not literal. Meaning that they thought, well, God, God is kind of like this mystical clockmaker that kind of set stuff in place and then backed up, and there's all these allegories, but God really is unknowable. You can it's really mystic how they approach God. They say, Well, this isn't a literal Adam and Eve, this isn't a literal flood. This isn't a literal judgment. These things are all just allegorical examples of how God might or might not be. And the appeal to that is, to be a practical agnostic after you get saved, the appeal to that is, is when you maintain that ignorance that you go, oh, I don't, you know, who can really know what's right or wrong with God? It's usually because you've come to a crossroads where, where you've gotten saved and God has said, listen, I'm going to deal with something that's really hard in your life. I'm going to deal with it. It's going to be a sin that's really stuck on you and it's hard to get rid of. And that's usually the point where somebody makes a decision. Either I'm going to listen and change or I'm not going to change and I'm going to start to become a practical agnostic. Because the only way I can justify it is that truth is subjective. It's not necessarily true for everyone. Nobody can know God. Nobody can live in black and white and know what his truth is truly is out of his word, but that's simply not right. God says, no, I, I put it here. You can find my wisdom and knowledge right here. He didn't hide it from you. He hid it here in, in scripture for you to find as a treasure. And so the, and so uh, a lot of these, you know, mysticisms, they'll, they'll come out of extra books or writings or, or uh, they'll be based out of experiential knowledge or, or anything that leads you away from the Bible. You'll, you'll find yourself more, you'll get more pleasure out of YouTube videos, out of, uh, out of uh, books written by men, right? Like you'll, you'll see guys get stuck on these weird theological tangents on books. You'll read a lot from human authors. You'll listen to a lot of human speakers and you'll, you'll pay attention to their writings and their teachings but you never sit down and actually look at what God says. If you're there, I'm warning you, you're, you're, you're here at, at this practical agnosticism. You're saying, well, I trust what these people say because knowing God is more than, than the Bible. I need to listen to these others and follow these others. If you spend more time reading their books and listening to their YouTube channels than you do reading scripture, Reverse that, close out the computer, shut down the smartphone, put down the book, pick up scripture, and actually read. God can help you understand his word. And so what is, what's Paul going to after this? He says, he says, I need you to be knit together in love. I need you to have the full assurance and understand God's word. But also, I don't want you to be beguiled. I don't want you to start living practical atheism, practical agnosticism. I don't want you to get beguiled by those things after salvation that are going to derail you in your growth. 
but he's relieved. He says in verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joy, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Says Paul received joyful news. He said, I was so concerned for your small congregation out in Colossae that that I, you know, I was just having this mental struggle. I can't be there to help you. It's like it's like a father who watches his child go out and you go, ah, I wish I could be there because I'm just worried you're going to make mistakes. But trusting and praying, you're going to be fine. Of course, I'm going to go through this very soon with one of my children and go, oh, I'm about to launch you out into the wild. And, just, and I hope that everything you were taught sticks. Paul is telling them, you were taught by the apostles and you were just, you're out there and I hope what was taught is sticking. And he says, oh, it's like when John was telling the, the woman, I heard a good report of your children. Paul says, I heard a good report of the church and it was wonderful. He said, I was joyful. Why? Because I was beholding your order. You actually were taking the teachings and you were, and you were actually conducting yourselves as a congregation in a way that was pleasing to God. This is wonderful. That's why church has order, because it pleases God. Order. And he says, I'm glad that you actually listened to what was happening. And of course, we see the order of the church written through the pastoral epistles uh, later on in, in Scripture. If you turn to the right, you'll see pastoral epistles. And uh, But they, of course, were receiving all this verbal, and so it had to be passed along verbally. It wasn't written down yet for them to read. And he says, I'm so relieved that you actually listened and you're, and you're applying it. And he says, and also that, and also that you are steadfast in Christ. I'm getting a report back that I am concerned because I heard there was false teachings happening. There was beguilement happening. There were a bunch of you who were young and got saved in a baby church. And there are those coming in trying to teach you things that were just really appealing. And I was so concerned because I was like, oh, this looks so true, but it's not. And if they start listening, it's going to kill their growth. And he heard, no, you stood steadfast in Christ. You actually looked at what was right, compared it, and you stuck your ground. And I love it. And he's joyful because this church, he had no idea what it was doing other than it existed. And they were under attack from very enticing lies that were going to derail them. And so verse 6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the face Faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein, therewith, sorry, therein with thanksgiving. And that goes back to what he was saying. I, you just stood your ground. You actually stood your ground in what God said to do. You stood your ground in what the apostles were telling you to do. And of course, we have the recordings of the apostles here now. We can go back and look at the same things. Would God be pleased with our church if he said, you stuck with what the apostles said? What I, what I told them to teach. You stuck with what I wrote down in my word. You stuck with it. Despite all the pressures and the enticing things that came along, you said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick to the order. We're going to stick to the steadfastness in your word, knowing that this is what's right for our church. And of course, this leads into what he, he goes into next, which is verse 8. He says, I'm glad you stood your ground. But I want to let you know there's a warning out there. I, I've heard that there's things coming in that are enticing. And now we always picture we always picture that that beguilement and the enticing words of men they come in and it's just obvious, right? Like they come in like 
snake oil salesmen with their cart and they're like, oh, truth for sale. And they, they pull up and they're like, let me sell you some enticing lies. No, you don't even know it's happening. You don't know that it's happening. It's, it's enticing. And I like the, um, I like, uh, here I'll read it to you. It says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Spoiled there does not mean like the milk is curdled and turned bad, or you left the ham in the fridge too long. Now it smells. That's not what the word spoiled there means. What the word spoils there means is like the spoils of war, meaning things that were taken. And so that means to be carried off like a bounty or to be robbed. You were being robbed by these enticing teachings that are incorrect. You're being robbed by them. And what are you being robbed by? Well, he told you, you're being robbed of wisdom and knowledge. You're being robbed of treasures that God has for you because you have ventured down a path that is not the straight and narrow path of God. You're venturing down a side route, a side adventure that was not meant for you. The world offered that. And he says, and it's robbing you the entire way. Imagine if you're, if you're walking down a path and you choose to go straight, and your friend chooses to veer off. You both end at the same destination, right? If you're Christians, where do you end? Heaven. But when God says, let me look at the good that you've done in my name at the judgment seat. He says, let me look at the good you've done in my name. What have you done? Wow. You followed a way that was vain philosophy and deceit of enticing things that derailed you for years. And at the end, you may only have a small amount of reward, but uh, your friend may only have a small amount of reward, but you have heaping piles because you stuck with what was in God's word and sought out the wisdom and treasure he had. And I like the way it's put in Pilgrim's Progress with uh, the chapter about the flatterer, right? And so you have these two pilgrims on their journey, and uh, it's not exactly what he's going for in Pilgrim's Progress, but the the... The metaphor applies so much to this with weak theology and, and enticing words and being pushed off and being pulled and enticed off the path of what God has for you after salvation is he has a flatterer who turned the pilgrims slowly as they were as they're facing towards the crystal palace, right? And he says, I'm I'm going this way towards God. There's a there's a flatterer. Notice it's not someone who's hateful or mean, it's a flatterer. Somebody who's using enticing words to convince them. And he says, degree by degree, he was flattering them. And as they kept their eyes locked on him, and he just kept talking, before they knew it, and this was after the fact, before they knew it, they no longer were looking the way they were supposed to be going. And he says, by degree by degree. It's not a sudden movement. It's just little things here or there. Start to get your eyes off of it. Before you know it, you are not where you're supposed to be. Your theology is weak. You're off the path of where God wanted you. You're not learning what he wanted you to. You're not applying what he wanted you to. And so they were pointed down another path before they knew it. But as they were going down, the net was snared on them. And they did not realize it. He says in, in the book, the net came up. He says, and the flatterer pulled down his mask. And it was the deceiver, Satan himself. He looked so appealing. And that's where they all come from. Satan wants you to be flattered and enticed with the things that the world has to offer or the teaching he has to offer. He wants to mimic 
and look like what is right. He's done it since the beginning and entice you degree by degree. He says, you got saved, but I'm going to keep your eyes focused on me because I'm really pretty and I can say nice things and I sound really good. And there we go. I got you to full 90 and you're completely off course. He goes, good. Now for the next one. I need him off track and him and her and her because I need Cornerstone Baptist Church off track. And I'm going to do it by one by one with each one of you with a teaching that sounds right, but it's going to get you off track degree by degree. And then finally, the doors will shut and I'll have another church, another notch on my belt saying, I've taken another one out. But the, but of course that's pointing to the Old West where every kill they got, they put a notch. I know you're from Texas, so you're probably like, yeah, you're like six shooter. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you knew Wyatt Earp. Yeah. But just for the, I, I grew up in Indiana, but everybody, you know, was kind of, I don't know, Southern over there. But yeah, they had the six shooter things. And that's where that saying comes from. Every time the, you know, in the old West, they get somebody, they just put another notch in there. Or they put it in the butt stock of the gun. Right. And so the, uh, so the flatter will turn you away just little by little, but, but uh, we're going to wrap up here. Because one of the biggest deceptions that will spoil you and rob you of the treasures are going to be what, what Paul is about to go through with the rest of this chapter. So the next sermon is going to be, we're going to push right through the end of this chapter because he breaks up kind of into four parts of like the different things that will entice you and, and move you off the track degree by degree. And so uh, some of those, of course, are going to be like improvements to Christianity, right? We can improve Christianity since it was started, can't we? We can make it a little better. Because, you know, that was archaic and old, what they wrote in Scripture. So maybe we can make it a little bit better and modernize this thing. Because we got to keep Christianity up with the times. We know that, uh, you know, they, you can go through some of these sayings, you know, Christianity needs to evolve with the times. Relevant Christianity needs to ditch the age-old ways of the past and stay with the times. Worship is about how you feel and how I feel worshiping God. And also... How I view God is just sometimes he seems pretty harsh, right? Like too black and white and it's tough. And so maybe if I just tweak how we view God a little bit and we present him a little differently from the pulpits, then it'll make it a little more palpable and people will be like, oh yeah, I can follow this God. But that's weak theology of a weak God. And Paul is going to walk us down a road of the different ways that these enticing words come in. And so... What's he, what's he doing in the, what's happening in this chapter is he says, remember, your, your church needs to be knit together in love. You need some comfort, Christians. So the first people you should turn to and the first ones you should turn to to help are each other. And he says, and also, you want more comfort? You need to be grounded in God's word. And I said, get out of the extra books, get out of the YouTube videos, get into God's word and just read it and look at what he has for you. I love my favorite part uh, of preparing for a sermon, I'm sure, Pastor Richard is the same, and, and Derek, and those who, who preach, is that when you sit down, you go, I really want to know what's here. And you just read it over and over, trying to get every little piece of treasure and wisdom that's in it. And you sit there and you just have a notebook, and all you're doing is reading God's Word. You write it down, you go, I wonder what that means. Oh, look at this. Oh, I never noticed that word was there. Oh, and you start writing it down. It's just you being taught by God. It's you being under the full influence of his Holy Spirit saying, what's in here for me? 
because you'll say, hey, you don't know what that means. Write a question down. Go search that out. What does that mean? Go arrest the scripture. What did I mean when I used that? And you'll start to find those treasures. And then as Paul was excited to get a good report, I would like for us to have a good report. And somebody to say, yeah, you, you stood your ground. You were steadfast in Christ. You also got a good report of your order, how you're conducting yourselves, not just church politics, but how you're conducting yourselves with each other is beautiful. And I warn you that there's enticing words coming. So just like I was comparing to that immune system, each one of us has responsibility because we need to recognize when something enticing comes through here or is taught from a pulpit or is taught from another person, you can recognize it and you go, I don't think that's right. And you can catch it and start to eliminate that so you don't get robbed of the things that are coming for you. But go ahead and wrap up there and give it back to Pastor Richard.